Let me, let me start with, uh, with a question. And if you were here, if you were here on uh, Sunday evening, the 6th of March 2011, then some of this might sound familiar. Okay? Now, I realize most of you weren't, and even if you were, you've forgotten it, but there might be some triggers. Here's the question. Is there anything in life more important than knowing God? Why don't you just answer that for yourself for a second? Is there anything in life more important than knowing who God is and discovering more about his nature and character? You see, God wants to be known. But sometimes the way he reveals himself and the way he makes himself known is surprising, it's unpredictable, and it's exceptional. And today, or in these next sort of 20, 25 minutes, we're going to meet some people who got to know God. People whose understanding and concept and appreciation of God intensified considerably. For some of them, the journey of discovery was breathtaking. For others, the journey was incredibly painful and deeply unsettling. So if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 6? I think it's pages 62, 63 of the Red Pew Bibles. We're going to pick up from where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Let me just remind you that in, that in part 5 of Man on the Edge, we made the point that life is a roller coaster. And Christian life is a roller coaster. There are ups, there are downs, there are twists, there are turns, there are highs, and there are lows. And Moses was no stranger to that reality. And in this very short space of time, we looked at this two weeks ago, he went from mountain to valley, from a spiritual high to a spiritual low, from people loving him. He was incredibly popular. People believed in him. But within about 24 hours, people wished that God would judge him because they believed that he had effectively signed their death warrant. He tried to help. He tried to do the right thing. And yet the people he came to speak into their lives and to give them hope couldn't stand the sight of him. And therefore, no wonder Moses, as we discovered last time, had questions. Including the classic, why? Why, Lord? And not just why, Lord, but why me? And Moses was not in a good place. And life with God was proven to be a real roller coaster ride. But you'll remember that, that one of the critical lessons we learned and discovered was that Moses wrestled with these questions in dialogue with God. Moses returned to the Lord and said, and so at this low point in his life, at this low moment, he didn't turn his back on God, he didn't walk away, he didn't voice off to those around him. Instead, he remained connected. He expressed his concerns before God and he put himself in that place where he could then hear from God. And the worst thing that we can do, and it often is the very thing we actually do, but the worst thing we can do whenever we hit a spiritual low, whenever it's all going wrong, 
whenever we've got more questions than answers, the worst thing that we can do is disconnect ourselves from our relationship with our Father. It's to stop praying. It's to stop reading our Bibles. It's to stop going to church. Moses returns to the Lord with his angst. And he finds that God speaks powerfully and directly into his life and situation. And we discover that God said two things. First of all, God clarified who he was. I am the Lord. And he repeats it a number of times during this dialogue with Moses. I am the Lord. And what he's really saying is, Moses, stay focused on me, not on your circumstances. And that's a message we all need to hear time and time again. Stay focused on God. Don't be consumed by your circumstances. And then the second thing that God says is he reminds Moses what he's going to do or what he promises to do. And there were seven of them. I will bring the people out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. I will bring you to a land. I will give you that land. I am Moses, therefore I will. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. I'm still God. I'm still active. So trust me. And that's where we left it two weeks ago. Now let's pick it up again in verse 9 of chapter 6. I want you to imagine that, that Moses must have been looking forward to sharing this info with the people. God has just told him what he's going to do. Seven promises. Moses must have been excited as he goes back to the people to tell them what God has told him. And yet when Moses goes and speaks, look at verse 9, the Israelites are having none of it. They won't listen. Their current circumstances, recent developments have left them discouraged and disillusioned. They won't or they can't accept that God still cares. Or that God is still active. And therefore they just dismiss and doubt his word and his promises. And I reckon and I want to suggest that that still happens day in and day out today. That God is constantly speaking to us. But sometimes, because of what we're dealing with, because of what we're going through, you're left discouraged, disillusioned. And therefore you find it difficult to accept or even hear words of promise, words of life, words of hope. And for some people here this morning, I realize that, and some people who are not here this morning, and they're not in a good place, they're at a low point spiritually. And all sorts of things are kicking off around them. And they just cannot accept that God still cares about them. And therefore have closed their ears to his promises and his word. And that's where these people were at. And Moses must have been feeling pretty low again. And so whenever God now asks him to go back to Pharaoh, he's confused. I mean, if if the Israelites won't listen to me, then there's absolutely no chance that Pharaoh's going to pay attention to a single thing I say. And Moses even reels out the old excuse that's there. Why would Pharaoh listen to me since I can't speak properly? which as we discovered during this series, was a lie. 
Moses was powerful in speech and action according to God's word. So God talks to Moses again, beginning of chapter 7. need to turn over that. Only this time, and this is brilliant if not a little strange, God actually agrees with Moses and says, listen, do you know something? Pharaoh is not going to pay attention to you. He's not. In fact, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not listen. Now, this cannot have made any sense to Moses. And it still doesn't make sense to lots of people today. What is the point of trying to negotiate with someone who's not only unwilling to listen, but now is unable to? It's sheer madness. It doesn't tend to work. Now, if we pause there for a moment, because although what is about to take place is a problem for lots of people today, and we'll get there in a moment, this particular aspect of the story, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, that leaves lots of people confused and disturbed. And and you may be one of them. And I know a couple of weeks ago, whenever I said in part six, we're going to come to this part where God hardens Pharaoh's hearts. Lots of you spoke to me afterwards and said, I cannot wait to hear what you're going to say about that. Why did God do that? Why? Why God prolong this whole episode? Why do something that means plague after plague after plague has to come crashing down on this particular people group. Why, God? And plague after plague after plague came crashing down on all the Egyptians. When you read the story, all the Egyptians are affected. If God didn't, if God hadn't hardened Pharaoh's heart, would he not have backed down far quicker? Would he not have let the people go much earlier and therefore substantially reduced his own people's level of suffering? I know that's how lots of people think. Well, let me say a few things in response. Although, what I'm going to say is probably going to disappoint. Because you can never fully explain God. And totally get your head round what he does. But to start with, if you have a Bible open, it's worth pointing out that Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. Look at chapter 8, verse 15, chapter 8, verse 32, chapter 9, verse 34. 8, 15, 8, 32, 9, 34, just three examples where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Therefore, God was effectively cementing what was already in the process of setting. God was simply confirming the inevitable. Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. God just cemented it. It's one explanation. But to gain a slightly bigger perspective, turn over to chapter 10. Look at the first two verses. They're going to be on the screen. Here's what God says to Moses. Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials. 
so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. The key phrase here, and we're going to come back to this, but the key phrase here is that final one. That you may know that I am the Lord. There's the reason. We may not like it, many don't, but that's why God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that God would be known. Why? Because there is nothing more important in life than knowing God. It seems God did this so that he would be known. So that he would be known as the one who responds to the cry of the oppressed. So that he would be known as the one who delivers the helpless. So that he would be known as the one who restores justice. And anyone, anyone who stands in God's way is going to be dealt with. And is going to be dealt with harshly as it says here. And for some of us, that's difficult to get our heads around, that God deals with people harshly. It seems that God also did this so that he would be known as the one who is in ultimate control of creation. He is the one who can turn water into blood. He is in ultimate control of the entire created order and the elements of nature thirdly it seems that God did this so that he would be known from generation to generation as people told and retold this story that's what it says there I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart so that I can perform these signs so that you will tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with these people so that you may know who I am. (laughs) So God hardened Pharaoh's heart because it was hard anyway and because it was necessary in order for people to know. Now, does that answer everybody's questions? Or dilemma? Guarantee it doesn't. But sometimes it's okay to be left with questions. And most of the time, you've just got to let God be God and stop trying to explain him. Back to the story, verse 5. Back to chapter 7. Verse 5. Because after God tells Moses, listen, Pharaoh's going to refuse to listen, God then also confirms the Israelites are leaving. So how's that happening? If Pharaoh's not going to listen to me, but you're saying the Israelites are leaving, how's that work? Moses and Aaron must have wondered that. But for now, they choose obedience and they simply go back to speak to Pharaoh. God, you'll notice in verse 8, gives them a miracle to perform. Aaron's to throw down his staff and it's going to turn into a snake, according to God. And right enough, the very first thing that happens whenever Moses and Aaron get another audience with the king is that Aaron throws a snake down in the ground and it becomes a snake. It's a bit of an aggressive start to a meeting. But rather worryingly, Pharaoh's sorcerers duplicate the trick or the miracle. 
But rather impressively, and look at it, Aaron's snake swallows up all the other snakes. So it's advantage Moses and Aaron. And then right on cue, verse 13, what happens? Pharaoh's heart becomes ice cold. It solidifies. Becomes hard, just as God said it would do. And Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. And then... Excuse my words carefully. It all breaks out. And for the next four and a half chapters in Exodus... You read the harrowing tale of ten plagues. Please don't... There is this kind of tendency to think you've kind of grown up in church. You relegate this stuff to to sort of kids. You know, the stuff we tell kids. Or we don't in this case often. But I want us to, to try... Imagine ourselves into this story. Because these next four and a half chapters are harrowing. And what you encounter here is you encounter a God who turns an entire nation's water supply, essential water supply, into blood. You encounter a God who causes frogs to infest land and homes, knowing that the frog is a sacred symbol in Egypt and therefore nobody is going to try and kill them. It's a master stroke on God's part. You encounter a God who causes men and animals to break out in festering boils. You encounter a God, and forgive me if this sounds blasphemous, but you encounter a God who, like Herod in the New Testament, authorizes the death of children. The firstborn son in each and every family. This gets, if we let it, incredibly uncomfortable. This is horrible history. And therefore, it's, it's no wonder that, that these chapters of the Bible, and many like them in the Old Testament, are increasingly avoided in 21st century world. And they're avoided for the simple reason that God at face value in the Old Testament often comes across as frightening, uncontainable, vindictive, and incredibly harsh. Philip Yancey, relatively well-known Christian author, in one of his books confesses that when he read the Old Testament, he used to look for ways to make God more acceptable and less fierce. When, uh, when Glenn, Glennis and I studied early church history, shared this before when we studied early church history in, uh, in London with Oasis Trust one of the, the people we were introduced to was uh, Marcion who during the second century came to the conclusion and this was similar to Gnosticism but he came to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were different two different gods that the wrathful Hebrew God of the Old Testament was a tyrant And therefore, he was a separate and lower entity or being than the all-forgiving God of the New Testament. And Marcionism had its appeal. Quickly got pronounced a heresy. And yet there is a challenge in recognizing that the Old Testament contains something like 600 passages of explicit violence 
many of which are linked directly to God. And how do you reconcile that with the non-violence preached by Jesus in the New Testament? How do you come to terms with a God who on the one hand cares deeply about a bird who smashes against your windscreen and yet on the other empowers the likes of Moses and Aaron to inflict horrendous suffering on a group of people via ten plagues which increase with intensity? How, how, do you, how do you explain that? There is nothing comfortable or comforting at times about reading the Bible. And as you read this account, and I must admit as I've read it again this week, as I've read these chapters 7, 8, 9, 10 and 11 of Exodus... And I've tried to put myself in their place. What must it have been like to be on the receiving end of these plagues? I found myself deeply disturbed by it. And yet I keep coming back to the reality that God's ways are not my ways. God moves and operates in ways that we can never predict, that we don't always desire. But that is his prerogative. He is God. You cannot box him. You cannot tame him. He is the wild and mysterious other. He is the one who revealed himself to Moses as what? The I am who I am. In other words, I will be what I will be, Moses. And either you bow the knee in reverence awe and submission or you kick against the reality of who God is and you live with the consequences that that's our choice God is God how God operates and achieves his purposes is how God operates and achieves his purposes And if we're looking for simple explanations, if we're looking for easy answers, if we're looking to contain and tame God, we are going to lose out. The only response is reverence and to be still for the presence of the Lord is here. Here in Exodus 7, 8, 9, 10 and 11. Here this morning. And nothing and no one will stand in God's ways. And therefore his power and his judgment are real. And in a world gone bad, in a broken, fallen, dysfunctional, sin-infested world, there was always going to be mess on God's rescue mission. As God's unfolding plan of redemption played out, there were always going to be casualties. And people were intent on standing in God's way. People like Pharaoh, people like the Egyptians, people who were determined to oppose him, to oppose his people. And God, being God, being who he was, couldn't turn a blind eye, couldn't walk away. And therefore at times and in various ways, God's power and God's judgment was exposed for all to see. And yet, as I say, whenever you talk about God's judgment, people get uncomfortable. And here in these chapters we find ten prime examples of God's judgment and God's power. 
but not just for the sake of it. Not just for the sake of it. There's a clear reason here. God's purpose in the ten plagues was what? It's to reveal himself. Back to these verses. It was so that he would be known. Which I know is unsettling. And yet it's explicit in the text. And in the drama of of these unnerving chapters, there are four characters and four groups of people who discover more about God for themselves. And to start with, there's there's Aaron and there's Moses, who who must have watched, stood back often, and watched these events unfold with wide-eyed wonder. Moses, you you will know that I am the Lord. Second group, the Israelites. You know, back in Exodus 6-7, when God spoke to them via Moses, this is what he said. Let me read it to you. I will redeem you with what? With mighty acts of judgment. Reference to the ten plagues. Then you will know that I am God. Then you'll know. And surely as the Israelites watched these spectacular events occur, which didn't affect them directly, they were able to stand where they were and watch this happening to the Egyptians. Surely their understanding of God was profoundly intensified. God was letting the Israelites know who he was in breathtaking ways. In the third group of the Egyptians... Exodus 7, 5, God says, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. How? When I stretch out my hand against them. And then by the time you get to the seventh plague, to the heel, God says, I will send, and again, this is, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and against your people. Why? So that you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. The Egyptians were being enlightened. But as I said at the start, their journey of discovery was disturbing. And finally, there's Pharaoh. Do you remember back in Exodus 5, whenever Moses first went to Pharaoh and said, the Lord says? Anyone remember what was Pharaoh's reply? Who's the Lord? I don't know him. Six chapters, ten plagues later, Pharaoh's a lot clearer. It's a lot clearer. God wants to be known. Not avoided, not dismissed, not ignored. And in the land of Egypt three and a half thousand years ago where animals and people were killed by hail, where a thick blanket of darkness descended for 72 hours, God intervened and everyone knew in no uncertain terms exactly who he was and exactly who they were dealing with. And as a result of these demonstrations of power and judgment, many people discovered new realities and insights about the character of God. And as we, 25th November 2012, as we read this story, as we engage with it, we are able to cultivate, maintain, or restore a proper notion of God because, and I'll say it again, there is nothing in life more important than knowing God. Nothing. A.W. Tozer, in his great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So how do you see God this morning? I'm nearly done. How do you see God this morning? 
How do you see the God of Exodus 7 to 11? How do you see the God of the Old Testament? How do you see the God of the Bible? Because how you see him, your concept of him, will profoundly affect your response. Profoundly affect your response. I want to suggest that if we see God as he really is, then we won't be need, we won't, Roy won't need to encourage us to bow the knee. We won't need to sing a song that tells us to bow the knee in reverence and fear. If we actually see God for who he really is, that will just be our natural response. I want to give you uh, seven more points. <laughs> Quickly. Here are seven truths about God that you discover here. First, God's real. Those who witnessed these events were, in le- were left in no doubt that God existed. Not all of them responded in worship. But one thing's for sure, nobody could deny his reality. And you know, there are many people today and they deny the reality of God. And yet it's destined unto every single one of us to die and then to face judgment. That, that's just the way it works. And then all of us will know that God is real. Secondly, God is incredibly powerful and dangerous. Any being who can cause this level of mayhem and disruption to life and nature has unlimited power and ability. Evil's also real. Let's accept that. Let's recognize that evil is real. The magicians, the sorcerers were able to duplicate the first two signs. They could turn the water into blood. They could do the frogs thing. But once they got to the third one, they ran out of ideas. God is incredibly powerful. Incredibly dangerous. Third, God controls creation. Said already, God is the God of the whole created order. Therefore, he's able to influence and mess with water, weather, insects, animal health, and the light of the sun. They all come under his command and authority. God sticks by his word. When God promises something, he sees it through. God said he'd rescue his people. God said he would empower Aaron and Moses. God said that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. God said that he would send these mighty acts of judgment on the Egyptians. It all came to pass. God cares passionately about his people. The Egyptians and the Israelites soon realized this. God was this interested in his people. God knew their struggles, felt their pain, sensed their frustration, and he responded accordingly. Why? Because his people mean so much to him. And following on from that, God hears the cry of the oppressed, the enslaved, and the exploited. God is a compassionate God who hates injustice. He notices tears because he's not distant, he's not removed, he's not remote from those who suffer. And finally, God is an awesome, and I know that's one of those words that often gets overused and misused, and, but God is an awesome judge. These plagues were truly dreadful. And although this dimension of God's character offends many people today, the reality is that whenever people reject God, dismiss his word, stand in his way, and worship other gods, judgment is inevitable. 
God wants to be known. Sometimes he has to scream loudly. Three and a half years ago, God turned up the volume to such a deafening level and revealed himself in no uncertain terms. That was the key purpose in these ten plagues. That's what so much of the Old Testament is all about. God establishing his identity and giving people a clearer insight into his character. Yes, the Old Testament, and I don't deny this, the Old Testament is hard to stomach at times. It's unsettling, but please don't miss the point. God wants to be known, and sometimes he will go to extreme lengths to demand our attention. Lengths that I will never fully comprehend And A, or if not, the core reason God wants to be known is why? So that we will respond to him. How will we respond to him? In worship. 43 times from Exodus 4 to Exodus 12, God says, let my people go. 15 out of those 43 times, it's let my people go. Why? So that they may worship me. Is there anything in life more important than knowing God? No. There's not. And as you and I reflect on who God is based on these chapters, as our vision and knowledge of him is enlarged and increased, I hope every single one of us will go from here. Willing and prepared to engage with who God is. And as a response, and as we engage in this journey of discovery of who God really is, the vastness, the bigness, the greatness of his character, that all we will do is by and worship. And may God deliver us from anything that holds us back from carrying out that task.